Hey guys, and welcome to the Bare Naked Health Podcast, where I interview the absolute best health and wellness practitioners from across the globe to show you what they do so you can do it too. This is because, like you, I did not always feel that health was easy. I tried different diets, exercise plans, but often felt misled by an industry that really thrives on you not getting healthy and always spending money on the next new thing. Because of this, I'm getting bare naked on health and pulling back the curtain to show you that being truly healthy is simple. Wherever you are in your health journey, I want to show you that with minimal effort, you can get maximum results and do what you love. Play with your kids, go for a hike, and crush it in your business all while feeling great. To give a kickstart, I encourage you to go over to BarenakedHealthPodcast.com to access my calendar and schedule a 15-minute call so we can discuss what is your biggest struggle when it comes to maintaining your health. Remember that I'm a holistic lifestyle coach and that the show is really sponsored by you guys. Each of you that works with me that I am able to take on as a client helps me to be able to keep putting out these podcasts for free. So I just want to thank you, each of you, for your love and support. Hey guys, I'm your host, Nick Horowski, and welcome to the Bare Naked Health Podcast, episode number 128. In today's episode, I interview the magical author, Phil White. Be sure to stick around for the end of the show to learn about Phil's current and upcoming books, how he connects with nature, and of course, a day spent chasing a black bear. Alrighty guys, and welcome back to another episode of the Bare Naked Health Podcast. And on the line today, I have Phil White. Phil, First question I ask everybody who comes on the show is share with us the highlights of your health journey up to this point. Oh, goodness. There's a question, isn't it? But you did tell me in advance, so I should be <laughs> relatively prepared, and I'm not. Um, yeah, so, I mean, really just uh, fortunate enough to have written for Sup the Mag and Canoe and Kayak, um, really since Joe Carberry and a few others founded Sup the Mag, and uh, obviously that's kind of the sister companion to Surfer Magazine, but for as the name would suggest stand up paddling and so just really trying trying to live that lifestyle you know we live in a small mountain town out here in colorado and um so yeah just uh that's that's one of the daily rituals to make sure we get uh the kids outdoors for at least an hour or two a day and uh get my daily commute in the coffee shop and by that i mean it's a 30 minute walk each way along the lake and uh yeah, the only traffic jam is if a big elk decides to stand him in the middle of the road and just kind of stare at you, you know, like Winston Churchill or something, you're all grumpy and jowly and refuse to move. And so, um, yeah, just really trying to live that lifestyle and then lucky enough to be um, connected with, with folks like like uh, Andy Galpin and Brian McKenzie, my co-authors on Unplugged, and Dr. Kelly Starrett and uh, our books Flight Plan and Waterman 2.0 that are coming out and Really, the, the goal of those is to, uh, to help as many people as possible improve their lives. And um, yeah, my wife and kids and I are trying to, trying to live that out here in Colorado as well. Well, all right. So here, let's let's jump into a couple of these books because I'm curious. Uh, I got to talk with Andy Galpin recently and he was, he was on the show. But what is it with when going through Unplugged? Like, What were some mm -hmm. of the biggest changes that uh, maybe you made in your life or just the biggest aha moments that you had when writing this book? Yeah, I mean, so really, just, and just to let people know, this isn't a book bashing technology, you know, despite the title, really, what we're trying to do is say, okay, there are appropriate uses for technology, and they 
are to inform and to cue and to recalibrate and to really try and help people connect the dots between what they're feeling and what's going on with their physiology and how that manifests itself in performance. And so in doing that, one of the things I realized about myself was there was this fallacy, this construct I created for myself in that certain hard workouts, particularly like interval workouts on, on the rowing machine, things like that. But man, I better have a playlist queued up, you know, and that iPod better be charged, you know, and uh, that if I, if I don't have this musical accompaniment that I'm not going to be able to get through this and even going beyond that, if I don't have a and, and a you know a handful of almonds, or um, go go even more more hippie or something like that, and have a handful of pumpkin seeds and a banana or an apple, you know, thirty minutes before I work out, that the workout's just going to be trash, you know. And so, just writing this book exposed both of those things to me for the psychological uh, fallacies that they are. And I started to realize that we we set up these expectations um, for ourselves, you know, like the. I wasn't aware before I started writing the book of the hashtag Strava fail. And what's that? So if somebody um, goes to record their workout in Strava, but it doesn't record it, you know, like it, their technology isn't working for some reason. And um, it's almost like it doesn't count, you know, so it's a Strava fail. <laughs> you know? And uh, a couple of the folks we talked to, you know, so the athletes they coach, just lose their stuff, you know, if, they're, uh, if their wearable isn't working before they go out for a ride with their, with their cycling club or their running club or whatever it is. And um, I, f- I think largely these are, are uh, self-fulfilling prophecies that manifest themselves physically but are created in our heads largely. And so, yeah, once I moved past that, ditched the headphones, ditched that armband with my old uh, third-generation iPod, you know, like Johnny Ive classic back from 2004 or something like that. And um, now I realize that my book, my liver is actually capable of adding some ketones into the mix and not just squirting out glucose. And so, you know, if I if I um, haven't eaten for three or four hours before a workout, it's no big deal. And, and I can get through that. My body has sufficient fuel. And so, yeah, really, if we're, if we're not living this out and, um, you know, Brian and Andy are living this out every day too, then we're just hypocrites and we're just not practicing what we preach. And so just knowing the integrity they have and how they're trying to help the athletes they coach and, um, you know, Andy's trying to do the science behind this and then make it applicable for the everyday folks like myself, um, you know, that inspires me to try to to do the same thing. Now, do you feel that it's easier, like you said, not having to have necessarily the wearables, like, okay, you're just talking like passing by maybe an elk on the road or something like, does that connection mm-hmm. with nature even like, does that help uh, from the standpoint of like being able to engage and just be totally present with your workouts or just with your body and not have to worry about, uh, like you said, uh, is is my Fitbit on or whatever it is? Like, is this all connected? Is this all recording? Uh, do you think that that makes it easier, like having that connection with nature to be able to really connect with your body then too? Yeah, I think so. Um, there's a story in the book of how everyone knows Laird Hamilton, obviously, is like the greatest waterman of all time and the greatest big <laughs> wave surfer of all time, which is fair. But in the winter, um, you know, sometimes if Jaws isn't breaking big for a couple of weeks, he'll he'll go skiing or snowboarding with some friends and um, not to give away any spoilers, but he, we asked him, Leg, can you tell us a story about where instincts may have saved you or saved someone around you? And 
his friend was about to uh, to go down this run on a snowboard and Laird just felt that there was something wrong and he grabbed his collar and yanked him backwards. And right afterwards, this avalanche just <laughs> swept down the mountain right where his friend would have been and would have just buried him, just taken him out. And, and, and he still to this day doesn't know exactly what, whether it was something he heard or just something he felt. But just from being out in nature, like he is one of the greatest human tuning forks that we know. And even going beyond this, we interview Stephen Kotler, um, co-author with Jamie Wheel of Stealing Fire, obviously, which is nominated for a Pulitzer. It's probably one of the best books I've read in the last five years. And also, obviously, Mr. Flow State, you know, The Rise of Superman, another brilliant book. And uh, he talks about being out in nature, giving you two of the triggers that you need to get into and stay in a flow state, which are novelty and complexity. Because if you... Even if you went out and walked or ran or cycled the same trail every day, but maybe you did it at a different time of day, well, one day you might see an elk. You know, the other day, I um, luckily I wasn't on the podcast like this because I, I would have been bitter and wanted, wanted to go outside and, and see what, what unfolded. But um, I've never seen a, a black bear in Colorado. Uh, we've been out here a couple of years now. And um, there was a black black mama bear and um, and two cubs wandering down the hillside uh, at the back slash side of my house. And so that trashed that particular day in terms of productivity. You know, my wife and I went out there and watched them. And then they went down to the inn that's just down the, the road from us. And so we watched them there get in the dumpster and climb the trees and stuff like that. And um, I was only partially aware because I was I was working at the time I was writing. But luckily, the shade wasn't drawn. It was open. And I noticed this and we were just able to have this wonderful experience, which we know people who've lived in this little town for 20 years and have never seen a bear during the day. And so it just um, a long, long story short, I guess it gives being out in nature and being fully immersed. It allows you to develop those kind of instincts Laird is talking about. It allows you to to notice things like at the corner of your eye, maybe you develop your peripheral vision a little bit. And in Laird's case, obviously more of a sixth sense because well, he's Laird <laughs> and just, um, and to become more aware of your, uh, of your surroundings as well. And if you're more aware, then you're more able to be more engaged. So what is it that, what's your sixth sense in essence then? Like, what is it that you can just absolutely tune into like that? Um, whether it be, uh, maybe from a connection like that or just something that like, hey, I am the best in the world at this. Like, where are you absolutely honed in on? Oh, I don't know about best in the world. My goodness. Okay, so here is the best in the world. Larry King. Okay, so Tim Ferriss has been push, pushing Cal Fussman really yes, hard. I don't yeah. know if you saw this episode. <laughs> so to have his own podcast and Cal's kind of nervous despite being like one of the best interviewers ever. So Tim thought it'd be fun, a uh, fun experiment to torture him by having him interview literally other than maybe Charlie Rose, the best interviewer ever, Larry King. And so Larry King, back when I wrote a little book called Whistle Stop about Harry Truman's 1948 campaign, like this secret past I have as a, as a history writer. And um, Larry King sent out a tweet saying he, he was reading it and can't put it down at the time. And that was like the biggest thing ever to me. You know, it was like two two lines of text. And it, and it um, yeah, amazing Some from coming from someone like Larry. But anyway, so Cal and Larry get in deep into this conversation. It was last week's Tim Ferriss podcast. Check it out. It's brilliant. And one of the things that uh, Larry tells Cal is that 
being in the moment is one of his biggest secrets. So he said, you know, I don't, it doesn't matter if I interviewed former President Barack Obama yesterday and I'm interviewing someone just equally incredible tomorrow. If today you and I are talking, no matter who you are, I am fully there and I am in the moment and I will talk to you and engage with you and be curious about you for as long as you are willing to talk to me. So, for example, when you reached out to me about this podcast, I was like, heck yes, you know, like I'll talk, I'll talk, I'll talk to you all day if you'll let me, as you can probably tell from my rambling answers so far. But um, I think that uh, in addition to writing, what I do for, for a living is have conversations. And in doing that, I provide a service, you know, it's kind of a servanthood mentality to these co-authors because they have all these brilliant ideas in their heads. They're very good, as you know, from talking to Andy at communicating them verbally but there's something like unplugged you know putting 75,000 words um on a page or the new book i just finished with fergus Connolly, game changer uh, and jim harbour as well that's almost 200,000 words it's like supple leopard size you know and, well, and i want so, to dive into that because yeah, my, yeah. my wife is actually a huge michigan football fan uh like okay. we have season tickets okay. and everything like that yeah. uh so if you wouldn't mind even just like giving a little insight on on game changer just what this sure. is about because yeah. uh this is something like I, I i found out about game changer just recently so i didn't get to dive sure. into it yet but if you want to give everybody even a heads up because uh I, i'm interested in the conversations that led up to a book like this even yeah absolutely so i got a text one day from um kelly starrett and he said just went to lunch with my buddies at the Niners and one of them wants to write a book, told him you can help. And literally, then he, he after this text, he sent an email to Erich Krauss, who's the uh, founder and CEO of Victory Belt Publishing, um, who obviously published Unplugged, uh, Becoming a Supple Leopard and many others, and said, hey, this guy Fergus Connolly has worked um, at the highest levels of elite sport, NBA, national team rugby, Premier League soccer, um, is now at the Niners with Jim Harbour, wants to write a book about really distilling these universal principles of, of teams and that also apply to the military. He's worked with elite military units in the UK and the US as well. Um, this is a book you should publish. And, you know, Eric did it, Eric did his due, due diligence, talked talk to Fergus and I, and um, yeah, within like 30 minutes, it was like, all right, game on. When can you get it done? And so it became, you know, this uh, year and a half, two year project. And um, and really, yeah, just Fergus's mind is brilliant. And he, you know, he's worked with um, the likes of former England captain Stephen Gerrard when he was at Liverpool Football Club or soccer, I guess you call it here. Um, after Jim and his team left uh, the Niners, he went to Michigan with him as performance director and is now director of operations. You know, he's worked with MEA teams. And so really what he's done here is... Um, distill these principles into into the game like what are we truly talking about when we're talking about two teams coming together or even in the military two opposing sides clashing and just some some different principles you know like ball speed and circulation and width and depth and how these are employed so for the casual fan i think it really made me look at all team sports games in a different way like you will never watch a team sport game in the same way again and then also we started to look at what it takes to prepare the player from a health focused model and um, also to develop not just physical attributes, but also psychological, technical and tactical abilities 
simultaneously because I think too often in elite sport we think we assume that people are only pushing the physical and a lot of times these teams are really you know really pushing that hard and pouring millions tens of millions of dollars into this but without the the mental fortitude to pull things off um the cognitive smarts you know to know the playbook and um different ways to, to compensate as well so you have someone like cam newton who's a physical freak but may not have uh say tom brady or peyton manning's experience to be te- technically or tactically as astute and so every player really has limiting factors that they can develop and also strengths which they can improve on and improve how they they apply these and so really what fergus has come up with is not just principles to explain the game itself but really with this foundation of health finding a way to develop a well-rounded athlete and the revolutionary thing to me is this underpinning of of overall health because without that foundation the pillars all these other pillars just crumble into the ground and you know you get the meat grinder of of certain college sports and pro sports you know the joke is the nfl stands for not for long and they just chew these players up and spit them out but fergus says as a coach you owe a responsibility to these young men or young women that you are coaching. And uh, it has to go beyond this. And then even we start to look at the culture, like how to, tr- you know, get beyond culture as a buzzword. What does it mean in terms of how to lead a team, how to mentor a team, educate a team, uh, prepare a team for game day and really work backwards from the game to uh, to make sure that you're, you're continually getting better. So, yeah, really broad scope. Um, but I, I think there's a lot of takeaways, both for the casual fan, the coach, the athlete. And, um, yeah, there isn't anything else like this, which is why Kelly sent me this excited text. And Kelly has a habit of speaking things into being in this world. And, and you know, it was through him that I met Brian and Andy for Unplugged as well and all these other great co-authors. And so, yeah, if you like team sports, um, get Game Changer because there's nothing else like it out there. That's amazing. Like I, and it's one of those I just knew I wasn't going to be able to read it in time before our interview, but I was really well, excited yeah, to just, check it's it out. It's almost 200,000 words. It's a doorstop. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> uh, no, okay. But speaking of uh, the mental side of things, I'm curious mm-hmm. how you take this into your world, like preparing for writing. Like, mm-hmm. Do you have mm-hmm. any uh, even rituals or do you get your make sure that you get your head basically clear and the right head, yeah. in the right space uh, to begin your writing? Yeah, for sure. Um, my friend Brad Stolberg at Outside Magazine, who's one of the best, if not the best writer in this space, um, recently wrote a book called Peak Performance with uh, running coach Steve Magnus. And uh, it's brilliant. Like if you have any interest in anything that we're talking about here today or that you generally cover on your podcast, I'd highly recommend it. And he talks about a couple of things, him and Steve. Um, and one of them is knowing your chronobiology. So knowing, you know, are you a, truly a night owl? Um, are you an early bird? Are you anything in between? So knowing basically when your peaks and your troughs are throughout the day and then trying if you're fortunate enough to order your day around those and then even goes into um, and Kotler covers some of this, too, but trying to set up your environment to be conducive to productivity. And so I know that in the afternoon, even if it cut, some people might think it cuts into my writing time to in quotes, lose an hour because I'm walking 30 minutes each way to the mobile office, which is the coffee shop. But to me, um, per Stephen Coulter in, in what he says in Unplugged, it just being that, that slow paced plod um, through this amazing natural environment along the lake and through trees um, really puts me in that flow state. 
and then I order the same drink. I'm there at the same time. Um, and it's this very kind of, uh, kind of set routine. And, um, yeah, every, everything I do is really focused around trying to, um, trying to create these periods of work where I am at my best. And so it, uh, I get a lot of my admin stuff done. I get shorter pieces of writing, you know, I write for a tech company. So I, I do, um, you know, blogging and customer stories for them in the morning. And then I write for the inertia and sup the mag. So those shorter pieces uh, do those. And then, uh, you know, in terms of actual book writing, that's usually late afternoon into evening. And then if my wife and kids go to bed early, I, I just continue and just give me that three or four hour block. And so, yeah, I mean, Steve and Brad in, in Peak Performance really give a model for how to do that and how to audio day. And it's, um, yeah, brilliant. Because when I read it, I, I, I was texting Brad and like, man, like you're not just preaching to the choir, but they did a really great job of, of really giving some great case studies of high achievers that that order their day in this way and the benefits thereof. And part of it, again, it goes back to what I said earlier with um, – with Cal Fussman and Larry King, it, it just creating a way that you can be fully present in your work and in that moment and fully, fully on. And so, yeah, espresso does play a part in it, but uh, there are some other things you can do as well. Phil, I'm curious now. I, I want to play almost devil's advocate here because is it that you structure your day around your peak performance or is, is your day already structured and you have just, been able to uh tune in and know what times are going to be best for you uh if that makes sense like because i i guess i'll give a personal example like i know when i go to work uh like when i'm seeing patients and that type of thing i know mm -hmm. when my wife is home i know when my son usually goes to sleep usually gets mm -hmm. up those things so i've almost I, I feel like i've created it where it's like okay i've let that kind of take its place and then mm -hmm. i just filled in but hey i can get up at five in the morning and just be laser focused and mm -hmm. I'm fine doing that. Like if, if I mm -hmm. want to get writing done, if I want to get uh, just any research I'm doing, like whatever it is. But I also feel that I can do that. If my son goes to bed at eight o'clock, I know by eight fifteen I can be right there and just get that mm -hmm. solid hour. in before I go to bed. So I'm curious, like uh, is there, or at least in your opinion, do you think that there's uh can we change the way that our chronobiology is? Uh, I'm not sure. Like, uh, in I, I don't know enough about it, but I'm just kind of curious mm -hmm. your thoughts on something like that. Sure. I mean, um, Dr. Michael Bruce, if I'm pronouncing that right, really goes into this in the power of when. And Steve, again, Stephen Brennan, Pete Performance, get into it a little bit. But um, I, yeah, I mean, obviously, if you if your wife works, say, and you're on the school run duty, well, that's a commitment. You have to be there. If you have a standing meeting with your boss at this time on a Monday, you have to be there for that. You can't change some of those things. And so it's not, don't get me wrong, it's not a thing where you can just march through life selfishly, just bending the cosmos to your will. But Unless it is you can, not, which in case, go, good well, for you. Well, in which case you can. That's great. But I think it's partly eliminating distractions. You know, Chase Jarvis has a podcast. Hopefully my kids aren't listening to this so I can say a bad word, but um, my kids are eight and 10, by the way. So yeah, my wife is going to slap me if they do. But um, he has a video, uh, Chase Jarvis, the creator of uh, Creative Live, an amazing photographer and a good friend and mentor as well to me. And he, uh, this video is called Getting Shit Done or How I Get Shit Done. And he talks about um, creating these, these blocks of work. And sometimes those are miscellaneous. Like if he knows I haven't updated my social feeds in a while, I've got to follow up with so-and-so about this. I've got to 
call someone, I've got to, you know, maybe bill a client. And so it can be an hour, hour and a half of miscellany, and that's okay. But knowing that um, later in the day, he has two, two 90 minute blocks, maybe separated by a workout or by lunch, where he's going to be specifically focused on a, his latest photography project or in working on, you know, say updates to the Creative Live website, and that's going to be highly focused. And so really, there's a reason that I didn't have a cell. My wife and I share a car and we, we shared a cell phone until last year. And um, one of the reasons for that was just the distraction factor. And it only got to the point where with Fergus, say with Game Changer, there were a couple of days where I was on the phone with him like six hours a day. And she was like, OK, we're done with this. You're getting the phone. <laughs> and so uh, but even now, I mean, the, the thing is, is face down and is switched off about six feet away from me. And in his book, uh, Irresistible, Adam Alter writes uh, writes a really great um, exploration of how technology is designed to make it addictive. And he asks a couple of very simple questions. And one of them is, how far is your phone from you right now? Okay, well, that may seem simple and pointless, but is it? You know, if this thing is like surgically attached to you in some way, then that's a problem. Like if you if you're aiming to be present in any kind of moment um, and to be fully engaged and yet your phone is always within reach, then that one of the triggers for addiction or to not being able to break addiction is proximity. And so his point is, look, if you want to write or do something focused like that you know, at least have it switched on vibrate and stuff it in your backpack. You know, if you're at a coffee shop out of sight, out of it truly is out of mind uh, from a behavioral psychology standpoint. And that's what he does as a career. So he should know. And so, um, yeah, it's really just trying to create this amidst this constant stream of emails and texts and social media stuff. And and if you are on, I, th I find that one of the most challenging things is if you're online researching, you know, for a project, um, I have to set myself mini rewards. So I really like the MBA. So I'll, I'll say, okay, if I can work till 10, un 10 p.m. uninterrupted, I'll reward myself by checking the MBA scores and maybe watching highlights of two games, you know, like three or four minutes on ESPN, whatever it is. Um, and I set up these mini rewards, you know. And so um, there, and some, sometimes it's probably bad to create like a food-based reward, but there are these amazing oat <laughs> bars from Kansas City that I still get shipped in called Star Bars. Um, this little boutique company called Chelsea's Bakehouse. She does amazing work. And so I reward myself once a week. If I feel like I've done a good, good job on a book that week, on a Friday night, I'll bang one of those down with a, a pint of whole milk or something like that after a workout. And that, that may seem silly to do that. But it's just those little rewards that um, I give myself if I feel like I've been focused enough, present enough, engaged enough and advance the ball on a big project. And if I didn't, then I don't get the reward. And so, yeah, I guess there are little tricks that you can play on yourself, um, milestone goals, whatever it might be. That's I, I, I like how you put that because each of us has that like we are going to. We're going to get stuff done no matter what. Maybe. Uh, well, some people will. Hopefully. But um, <laughs> to have that that time block, I think, is what's really important. Like you said, it's I, I know when my time blocks are. Maybe I'm actually not at my peak. Maybe I'm only at 80% at some of those. Mm -hmm. But if I know when they're going to be, like you said, it's going to be maybe 90 minutes before or 90 minutes after a workout, I still am focused. I'm still aware of when that presence mm -hmm. is going to be made. Uh, so I think that just 
awareness of it, even if it's not the absolute perfect times for each of us, we're setting ourselves up for getting the most we can out of that 80% or 50% or 100%, whatever it is that we're getting uh, at that time. So I think that's uh, that's a good way to think about it. At least in my head, I'm, I, I think I followed what you were saying with that then. Yeah. Uh, and I think um, it, Stephen, Stephen Kotler gives a kind of a contrary example to this. And, and Andy Galpin probably taught you about the need to create some adversity in our lives. Yes. So he, he'll probably call me after he listens to this and say, stop being so precious, like do things at different times every day, you know, make yourself a bit more resilient. And he would be right. But Stephen said that he, um, you know, there's some stories of like the great Roman orators like Cicero and those guys, you know, like going out or in Greece, ancient Greece, going out to a beach and their mentor making them give a speech like a, above the rolling surf so that they can hear it, you know, to train themselves to project their voice. And, um, you know, is it the Alexander method or something like that? The actors used to use in the theater for that kind of thing. And so Stephen Kotler he said, I want to, um, when he's preparing for a speech, and he, he gives a lot of, I mean, he's in demand, you know, he's a New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize nominee, brilliant guy. And so he said, I'll go on a walk up a big hill and give my speech, like he'll print it out and bring it with him and do that. So he figures, well, if I'm out of breath, and I can give this speech, and I can project pretty well, he's really going back to like these, these great orators from the Roman Empire and from ancient Greece and doing a similar thing. Um, and he also figures, well, if it also happens to be wet and rainy that day, then all the better, you know, bring on the adversity. And then if he's in a cushy air conditioned auditorium at Google or some, somewhere like that, giving a talk, well, he's probably going to be just fine because he, he was able to deliver that walking on this wet and windy day up a bloody big hill at the back of his house. And so, um, there is certainly something to be said for, uh, for switching things up occasionally. But I think um, Steve and Brad's point is that it, success is not accidental and excellence is not accidental. And to the best of your ability and so that your schedule allows, um, just try to structure your environment in a way that is conducive to the best that you're able to give at the times of day that you're most able to do it as much as is possible so that you don't neglect your kids or your wife or whatever. <laughs> So if, if Andy's going to call you out on this anyway, I'm going to ask, uh, what, 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 do you, what can you change right now or what's something you can do uh, in the next day or two to actually work on some of your resilience? Yeah, I mean, just um, I guess Kelly Starrett always, always says, like, stop hiding behind your weaknesses. So um, I jacked up my ankle playing pickup basketball. You know, this is probably a common thing for guys in their mid mid to late 30s you know like i've heard guys that i know like that are, were elite athletes in college that um maybe don't consider themselves that way and join a, so a mixed so you know uh co-ed softball league or whatever and go out and pull a hammy the first day so i started playing pickup ball again um with a couple of mates here and um stepped on someone's ankle real bad and i've never jacked up the right one it's always been the left and it it was really bad and I felt like I almost popped something in, even though um, Kelly has a couple of questions about whether that's anatomically possible or whether I imagined it. But anyway, so <laughs> in helping me rehab this ankle, him and our other buddy, Travis Dewitt, who's a mobility water instructor, said, you need to like go up. You're, you live in a hilly place. You need to go walk up and down hills and like walk diagonally up and down hills because I'm still missing that like 10 percent of flexion and dorsiflexion in that right ankle so when i squat you know right now it's like whoop, or wonky and so 
to Kelly's point, I need to stop hiding behind that weakness. I need to get his uh, voodoo floss. I need to wrap that ankle. I need to sit in a deep squat for probably five or 10 minutes at a time and just try to recapture that uh, range of motion. Because, yeah, right now, I haven't been able to play ball for a while, kind of limiting. And um, I use busyness as my excuse. So stop using busyness. Stop hiding behind your weaknesses. Go and fully rehab that freaking ankle so you can get back to playing some hoops. I like it. I like it. Can't wait to get or uh, see some pictures. Maybe you Duncan here or something like that. Right? Oh, I don't know. That, that's been a while. <laughs> uh, all right, Phil. So we've talked about so many books here. I'm curious and mentioning some of the history stuff. What are maybe like two of your favorite history books? Yeah. Okay. So um, I really like microcosm histories. And so I'm looking on my shelves here to try to find there's so many good ones. Um. Let's see. What would I say? There's so many. This is an okay. How about question. You, okay, even if it's even if it's uh, too no, much on books? What about like uh, particular events or particular parts of history? Like, what are you just absolutely into? Yeah, I mean, I really geek out on um, World War Two and early Cold War history, and it's interesting how certain events, uh, certain conversations, a single conversation can pivot history completely. And so when uh, Chamberlain called in Lord Halifax, who he wanted to succeed him as prime minister of England and Winston Churchill and Halifax says, I'm not your guy. I mean, most people in their ego and, and he was a fairly egotistical guy would have been like, yep, I'm next in line. I'm taking that. Of course, I'll take that from you, Chamberlain. I'll be prime minister and lead the war effort. And I believe if he had, he would have, after Dunkirk, which is a brilliant movie, and again, just a, a wonderful microcosm, um, that we would have capitulated to Germany and things would have turned out a lot differently. And so he says no. And so Churchill's there and, you know, Churchill's the guy. And as we know, that that turned out pretty well. And so... Um, Full disclosure, I did write a book about Churchill and how he ended up in this tiny little Missouri town in 1946. The book's called Our Supreme Task and how the college president of this little uh, little pr private liberal arts school managed to get the most famous man in the world to come to his little town in the middle of nowhere in 1946. And that was where he gave his Iron Curtain speech, where he was really the first one to call out communism and to say this is what Russia's really up to. And that um, really set the stage for uh, the Cold War. And so I'm really fascinated by the intersection in the lives of so-called small people, you know, like the president of this college and um, great people like Winston Churchill. And uh, in the meeting of their lives and the crossing of their paths, um, some amazing things have happened. And so, yeah, writers like Simon Winchester, um, just unbelievable in what they do. There's another one by John Lukacs called Five Days in London, which is around the time, you know, Dunkirk has just gone down. British forces were basically routed. We got a lot of the men off the beach, but, you know, just morale was so low. And a lot of people in Churchill's government were, cause, uh, were calling for him to just seek, in quotes, peace terms with the Nazis. And uh, obviously that wouldn't have happened. Britain would have just been a vassal state. And so it would have been like the man in the high castle, basically, is what I think would have happened. And so, yeah, just uh, um, that book, Five Days in London, is a really great microcosm of just that part of one week that, again, just pivot, pivoted, you know, what has happened in history in, in the last half century or more. That's awesome. Like, it's amazing to me. You're talking about like those microcosms because 
you you look at something and a book could only be about a week or uh what is it april um 1865 i mean you just look at like yes. a month like this like books like that where it's just this small snippet but mm-hmm. the amount that has happened and the amount of world history changing in that small period and that yeah. you can just be sucked in and enthralled by that just absolutely blows me away every time oh yeah or like another one with the cuban missile crisis um michael dobbs i but not the michael dobbs that wrote house of cards but another one um i think it's called one minute to midnight yeah just these ones that you know that was a very short period of time but obviously had kennedy not handled it the way he did well, we could have been like looking at a nuclear apocalypse. So yeah, really anyone. And that's such a skill to be able to zoom in into micro level events and then zoom back out to the macro and back into micro. It's these, some of these authors are, they're almost like film directors, like Chris Nolan um, in the book uh, companion to Dunkirk. There's a great interview with him in there. And he decided not to show the Germans more than just a glance of like a fighter pilot because the people on the beaches, you know, Tom Hardy and his plane, um, they wouldn't have really seen the Germans. It would have been just this this menacing fear that was out there. And, you know, shells are going to come down and a plane is going to dive on the beach and strafe, strafe the water and strafe the beach. But he tried to show it really from their perspective. And just reading that, like, how smart is Chris Nolan, number one? You know, the fact that he writes these movies with sometimes with his brother, I believe, and his wife is, you know, his executive producer. And um, so I like that element of it, too, because my wife is like my secret weapon, Nicole. She's our developmental editor and proofreader. And the only reason that Unplugged or Game Changer or any of these is in any way coherent. But um, so there is that that aspect of it. But um, even so, you know, beyond that, from a storytelling standpoint, just the ability to to know what to show and more, even more so what to cut out and what not to show, like whether that's in book form or that's um, in movie or what I guess music, even a great producer does that with, with a good album and makes it great. I mean, that's um, that's the kind of stuff that, that lights me up. What got you into, and, and I don't know all about your writing history, Phil, so I'm curious, like, mm-hmm. where did it kind of start? And was it was it always just the history and then you got into, like, the outdoors, performance, health, or, like, what blended all of these together? Yeah, I mean, really just, um, I, I mean, I guess the health and fitness stuff, that's just how I've always lived my life. You know, I, I came over to the U.S. in 2000 and played um, – my, my version of football, different shape ball, <laughs> soccer at a small college. And uh, for some reason, best known, the basketball coach, basketball as well. And so, um, you know, just always lived a pretty active lifestyle. My mates in the UK, you know, rugby players, footy players, that kind of thing, runners. And uh, and so really just um, when I started writing for Sup the Mag, like right when stand-up paddling was getting big, you know, Dave Kalama and Led Hamilton were kind of leading the charge on that. And um, so that kind of gave me an outlet to, to write about the kind of things I was doing because I was kind of an early adopter in that subspace. And then from there, um, I interviewed Kelly Starrett and uh, he did a video for us. He did a couple of, you know, like top five mobility exercises for, for stand-up paddling. And we just, it was right around the time he was kicking around the idea of doing Ready to Run with TJ Murphy, who again is another brilliant writer in this space. And we thought, well, what if we did Ready to Run, but for paddling? So hopefully summer of next year, um, Waterman 2.0 will come out. So anyone that's into water sports of any kind, it's just basically how you should be able to function as a, a human. And if you can't, how to fix yourself. 
And then um, we also wrote another one called Flight Plan, which is really it's a 12-step 12, uh, 12 program. Sound familiar? <laughs> uh, 12, um, 12 steps to really not just su survive flying air travel, but to thrive. And so I'm hoping that will be out uh, by the end of this year. It better be. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, and then really just Kelly, again, the great connector and, and how generous he's been with me in uh, putting his, his uh, kind of reputation on line with you know, the likes of Brian and Andy and Fergus and all these other wonderful co-authors. And so, yeah, really on the book front, um, really just in this heavy co-authoring co phase. And I like it because I think I hopefully bring something to the table and in, from the writing and interviewing standpoint. And um, and then obviously these these co-authors, you know, Kelly, Brian, uh, Fergus, Andy and the rest, they have they're the experts. And so you pair the expert with the delivery mechanism, which is me. And, um, you know, hopefully we're able to convey ideas in a way that uh, looks at things a bit differently and really gives people some practical steps for how to improve their lives. So talking about these interviews, these conversations, because I think that when you said conversations for a living kind of before, like that's, that's stuck in my head here. Who, who have you not had a conversation with that you are just still like chomping at the bit to be able to talk to? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. And I went through a heavy phase recently with Kelly um, in interviewing people for for a flight plan. And, and I talked to like Barry Zito, Matt Hasselbeck, Jocko Willink, Dave Asprey, Rebecca Roosh, and 10 other people in the space of like a week and a half. And that was pretty mind blowing. I yeah, mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> And, and then, um, you know, through through Brian as well, um, both on this book and a secret-ish new project that we're working on, you know, Stephen Kotler and Jamie Wheel and Casper van der Mulen and, uh, you know, some of these, uh, Yami Tikin and some of these brilliant minds in this and every single one. Um, I have to record the conversations as well because there are so many when I'm trying to scribble along and you have these like, ah, holy crap moments. Like, wow, we could write an entire chapter on one sentence or one phrase that you just introduced and that can kind of throw you off a little bit and so um yeah i mean being very blessed to talk to all these people i mean i would love to uh to talk to brian grazer the hollywood producer you know works with ron howard um he wrote a book called a curious mind which i love just about the need to have conversations and be curious and so uh i, I think he would be fascinating to both talk to and if he would ever let me work with him to work with and uh, Larry King, again, would love to um, to not just talk whistle stop with him, but just have a chat because, you know, him, again, Charlie Rose would be another one while he's still doing his thing and is the grandmaster. And so, um, yeah, I guess those would be maybe the the top three right now. How have you cultivated those interviewing skills, though? Has it just been sheer practice have you studied those other guys that you've just listed off even like what really gets you into uh an interview a conversation yeah i think part of it is is studying them and, and li listening to that some of their tips and tricks but that is just doing it you know like from the podcast probably I, I don't know if the first couple if you uh if you had any jitters or if you you know pretty confident with it all the way along but um you can be kind of intimidated sometimes like the first cover story I ever did um, was on Ben Harper and I've always loved his music and getting the chance to like sit on the side of a stage and watch his performance and then interview him afterwards. And then he had me come to another show and interviewed him again. And um, 
I was a little kind of like, wow, overall, like here's this two time Grammy winning singer and uh, just somebody whose message I really jive with as well. And so um, but then I, I saw an interview with Matt Damon one time where he was talking he was talking to Tom Hanks when they, when they were doing Saving Private Ryan. And he was talking to Hanks about working with people like Jackie Gleason and some of these amazing uh, figures in Hollywood. And um, he said, like, how did you do that as a young actor working along some someone of that that level? And um, he said, I, I made the conscious choice to not be nervous. And I've always held on to that because particularly if you get like we interviewed recently, we interviewed Ari Emanuel and we got literally like seven or eight minutes of his time. And he's very fast paced. He's very focused. And, and so sometimes like you and I today, if we're on the, you know, on, I was going to say on the phone on Skype for, you know, an hour and a half. Well, that's great. You get into a rhythm and, and everything else. But sometimes it's literally that or, or for the for unplugged. Initially, I was going to interview Led that afternoon. And then Brian texted me. Led said he's open now. Can you jump on a call? And Led was at an airport or something. And he just, you know, figured it would be better now than later on. And it, you know, I hadn't had time to write out my questions. And um, so, yeah, and, and we didn't get very much of his time. So to me now, the biggest challenge is those those um, amazing people like Ari or like Led that literally not because they don't want to give you their time, but they're very, very busy as a lot of demands. And so you get seven minutes, you get 11 minutes, you get 20. And it's not like a, you know, oh, I don't want to keep you. Oh, it's OK. We can keep going, you know, but it's a there's a hard stop. Bang. And you need to get as much high quality info as possible. That intimidates me right now. And so I'm trying to consciously not be nervous no matter who they are. But I really need to get better because um, I'm not very good at that, knowing I may have one or two questions um, only. And I've got to turn that into something actionable that we can use in one of these books. Now, do you already have an idea of all the questions that you want to ask everybody? Uh, or is it you're still really formulating them? So like you said, it's like, okay, go, you, you have to go. But do you already have all of that stuff in mind? Uh, maybe when you've already been uh, months ago, when you've been formulating it, or it's you're just going on the fly sometimes? Like, how does that? Uh, mm -hmm. I'm just curious kind of how you come sure. about your uh, question asking. Yeah, I mean, if it's someone like Ben Harper, he you've got to know that he will not answer questions about his family. And there's a documentary called Pleasure and Pain, um, which is is named after the first um, LP he did with Tom Freund back in the day, where he storms out of an interview because they ask about his family. Or if it, you know, I've never interviewed Robert Downey Jr., but there was that incident last year where someone went somewhere they shouldn't have and they should have done their research and known that's you can't go there with him and he's going to walk out. And he did. And so that's what happened. Um, so I, I, I did enough research with Ben. that I knew that. And also, if it's somebody, um, an actor or a musician that may be doing 10 interviews a day for three or four weeks around a new album, you can't just ask them BS lazy questions like, how is this album different from your last one? That's just lazy. So what I try to do is I try to go and um, set that little filter on Google so like the last six months or the last year. And I try to look at other interviews that they've done. And I try to ask questions that will elicit different information to what I find. And so I'll write down, you know, between five and 10 open-ended questions of things that they aren't asked day in and day out because 
I think they get really sick of of that kind of lazy interviewing. And so I try to, n- to not be a lazy interviewer and definitely do the research in advance. And now, like I said, with Laird that day, um, we knew exactly where we wanted to put what he was going to say in the book. And that's another part of it. You've got to know um, if it's a section on, you know, br- you know, um, I almost said something I shouldn't have then and give something <laughs> else away. But um if you're doing something on the brain and, you, you know, ch- chapter nine is on the brain and you're going to be talk- talking to a Stanford neuroscientist, well, you know pretty much what what's going to go in that chapter. You know, he's going to go in that chapter and then you know which sections you need to fill in gaps on. So, yeah, that's the other part of it. So do your research. Don't be a lazy interviewer. Come in prepared. But then also, if you are writing a, a book, know, kind of have an idea where, you know, are you going to use this, say, as a sidebar for a case study? Or is it going to go in the main body copy? And if so, do you want to lead off the chapter with this person? Why? What is it in what they're doing that could set up an entire chapter? That kind of thing. So, yeah, definitely is strategic. But there are those lightning bolt calls, either from Kelly or like, you know, even from Brian or Andy or whoever, where they're like, hey, I I got so-and-so now. And you weren't anticipating them being free till next month. But it comes down now. You've done a little prep and you have to just roll. But then the key is, like Larry King says, be present in the moment asked a couple of open-ended questions and um, let them tell your story. Like you're not trying to show off your skills as an interviewer. And another thing Larry King said recently was sometimes the simplest question is the best one. So a simple open-ended question that isn't lazy and is maybe going to tell you something different. Yeah, because talking about him, well, between him and Cal, there there were Mm -hmm. one or two that he said in there uh, where he turned like, he said like, yeah, somebody would ask it like this. But here's how you should ask the question. Yeah, and he I just know, right? These, and I, I've already had to go back and listen to it because it's such this profound thing, and it's hard for me to wrap my brain around even right now. Like, because I think of like I have a list of questions that I always have. Like, but then I always hmm. go through like just almost generic questions. But then I always yeah. have my specific questions depending on who I'm interviewing. But he says like he doesn't even have like anything right now, and it's like that blows my mind to for him to be able to just tweak a question on the fly and get the exact answer uh, or have them go in the exact direction that he wanted them to go, I think is amazing. Right. And asking people like what happened, like his thing he said about, you know, the the first Gulf war, you know, people would try to report, you know, and they, every day they would have a general come in and and he would just want to know what happened. Like from your perspective, what happened? And then he'd shut up and get out of the way. Because that, that general was able to add that much to that. It was incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it's um, it, why trying to get into motivations like he it, and, and I don't want to go too da- far down this road because some people might be, be offended by me even mentioning it. But but Larry King was saying if he had interviewed Osama bin Laden, the first question he would have said is, you grew up in one of the richest families in Saudi Arabia. Why did you leave that behind? And that would start down the journey of like, who else would that that would be their first question in that interview? Nobody else, because he's done 50, 60,000 interviews and he knows to get to the heart of something controversial like that, um, something hard hitting, something that's going to upset a lot of people. You, you can't go in judging, even if in his heart he thought, wow, this is a terrible guy. Look at 9-11. Um, you've got to go in as unbiased as you can and put your preconceptions aside and really just try to get to the why. What is their motivation? Why did, why, what is the thinking that dictated the action? 
it was, and I must harp on this again. Anybody that has not listened to this interview, it was absolutely incredible. Uh, and to bring up like the Osama bin Laden thing, like I don't care what your thoughts are one way or another, to be able to come up with a question to say like that, and that would have just, that, that would have just gotten so much information. And I can't imagine where that interview would have even gone from that point then too. Right. And, it, and it, someone like Larry King is not about hashtags or buzzwords. And he admitted he has to adapt to the medium because now he's doing his online only show, you know, and I sure wish I could have gone on after he tweeted about it, <laughs> you know, like whistle stop, can't put it down. Like, yes, go, like, come on. We, we've got to be able to leverage this people. But for some, whatever reason, my publisher couldn't, couldn't uh, reach out to his people or they just weren't interested because I'm a nobody or whatever it might be. But just to even have a beer with Larry King or to have a coffee with somebody that, that is that um, on top of their game to that degree, you know, the one of the best of all time. And really, that's what Brian Grazer gets into in his book, A Curious Mind, having these curiosity conversations. And his only rule is they can't be in the entertainment or they can't be in the movie business, movie or TV. And, and so he'll go and talk to, you know, nuclear physicists or astronauts or musicians or whatever. I, he, he because he's Brian Grazer and, him and Ron Howard of the dream team in Hollywood, he can do these things and set them up. But wouldn't it be incredible? I mean, I get I'm privileged enough to have that within this performance world with with Kelly and Gray Cook and Brian and Andy. And I feel very thankful. But, yeah, to be able to have that that kind of uh, leverage that Brian has, Brian Grazer, to go and be able to talk to any any of these masters and really just try to uh, again ask them a few open-ended questions and just find out what drives them what you know, what brings to excellence what what does mastery mean to them and uh yeah so again larry king charlie rose any at cal Fussman, any of those guys just uh in this craft to be able to to um to talk to writers and even talking to people like brad you know or uh I got to talk to Chris McDougall, you know, I mean, born, you born know, born to run, run yeah. is like the, the sem in, in our space in the last like 25 years. And so just to talk to Chris a little bit, I mean, what a privilege. Phil, I'm curious now, I, I want to go down this almost curiosity path because stand up paddleboarding has been something like is I I've been intrigued by, but like I have two dogs, I have a son, another one on the way soon. Like, how do you do it with your family? Like, how do you make everybody part of that? Because that's really what I would mm -hmm. want to do with something like this. Just put your kids or your dog or all of the above on the biggest, most stable board you can find and just go do it, you know? Because like my kids, um, to my shame, are still going through swim lessons, you know, and I'm a terrible swimmer. I mean, I need to get Brian, if you're listening, can you come out to my house and we'll do like a one-week intensive camp with these kids and and you can tell me all the stuff I'm doing wrong as well and we'll do this. But um, <laughs> anyway, so joking aside, just, um, you know, even even where they're, they're not really quite at this stage right now and um, we haven't bought them, you know, kid-sized boards and kid-sized paddles, but I think just giving them the experience of sitting them on the board and then paddling out a bit with them and then paddling back. And uh, just the same as you would take your family on a hike, you know, you're not going to go hike K2 or Everest or something, but you could just keep doing it progressively, more difficult, you know, and, and when they're ready to, um, you know, Jim Terrell at Quick Blade, the mad scientist, you know, makes the best paddles in the world and the kid size adjustable paddles he has now are so light and so great for small little hands. So just like you wouldn't 
give your kid like your size 12 and a half shoes and say go run around in them you know i wouldn't put this giant like three pound uh hammer of thor in the hand of your kids when they're ready to paddle their own board but yeah i mean if they're you know before they can swim put a life jacket on make sure you're safety conscious go out on some flat water and um then just progressively you know as they're able to swim um you know you know maybe go a bit further as you know you're able to show them some technique pointers and they're starting to get those motor skills down um do that and then if you live near um like mike isaac down at dana point has the paddle academy and just a really great program for kids or Brody welty's paddle fit is another one where just great instruction for kids and so i mean the great thing with stand-up is the entry ramp is so low it's like kelly calls it the gateway drug for other water sports because it's like can you you know if you can stand up great and even if some adaptive athletes amazing adaptive athletes in this sport that are on a wheelchair where you can have a bigger board that will accommodate the wheelchair and so um you know, or, or, or uh, it also allows you to adapt to the conditions. So if it gets super windy out on a mountain lake, like a storm is blowing in, well, you can take a knee if you need to and use it more like a canoe paddle, just grip it further down the shaft. And then if you need to, you can lie prone and just prone paddling in as if you were body, you know, boogie boarding or, or prone paddling. And so, yeah, it's really just a great um, versatile entry ramp. And I, I'm not, I don't have a canoeing or kayaking background like Kelly a lot of people don't know his background is a, a river rat, you know, like his, uh, so he calls Waterman 2.0 kind of his love letter to paddling as well as being like a how to fix yourself book. And so um, he has that background, but for even for others that don't, you know, or have never surfed, like Laird says, it's way easier to teach someone to surf on a sup board than it is on a regular short board. And so, yeah, it's just a, gate, a great gateway drug. If, if you can, um, you know, just get get the biggest board you can find and um, a reasonable paddle. Just rent one for 15, 20 bucks from your local place and and just, uh, yeah, just get out there and do it because it's so, so simple. It's no no harder than walking down the road. I'm going to have to just, just give it a shot because that's, I think, part of what I thought about too was like, all right, the, the weight limits on some of them, like if I were going to put like one dog on there with me too, like, all right, we're mm-hmm. closing in on 300 pounds right away. Oh, no, no, you're fine. There are, there are plenty of big boards. Like if, if you can find like a 14 foot long by like 28, 30 inches wide, there are plenty of stock boards like that out there. You'll be fine. They even have guys like fishing off of them now. You know, they're almost like fishing kayaks, but sup boards and they have gear tie downs. They have their, their cooler for the fish there. They got all their gear, like that webbing. They got their dry bags. And so, oh yeah, if they can fit all fishing crap on there you can fit a dog on there you can fit a kid on there no and that actually intrigues me even more because i don't like uh like that's one of the reasons like i didn't want to get into kayak fishing is because i don't like just sitting mm-hmm. there the whole time like i want to be standing up uh so i think i, I might have to really start looking into this because i was looking in like uh, of course i want to get a boat but uh, that's, that's a lot harder buy in there. Then I got to get the space. I got to convince my wife on. <laughs> oh yeah. The, the old adage that there are only two good days owning a boat, right? The day you day buy it, the day you sell it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've gotten that one a bit too. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. And also it provides a different vantage point because one, you are standing, so you're not closing off that hip. Yeah. So you're not like, Oh my goodness, my back hurts. Um, but also just, yeah, guys that have that background, like Kelly, he was like, you know, the first time I started standing up was, you know, before he learned how to shortboard surf and taught himself. But it was just this different different vantage point because you're higher up from the water, you know, and 
you're feeling it a little bit different to how you would if you you were canoeing or kayaking or rowing or something like that and so there's even that that vantage point thing maybe if it would be like being on stilts like that for one of those 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 white water guys or something like that i'm not sure but yeah so that's another kind of cool thing like do it in a kayak or, or do a certain run on a a canoe or a kayak and then try the same run on a stand-up board and you'll have a completely different experience that sounds interesting i i like just uh different perspectives and like we talked about before or you said like the novelty and complexity like if you just take the same route do the same exact thing every day but it's here you might do go the same route but you might just take it from that standing versus sitting i mean just going through there and it could be a completely different ball game just out in nature and having a blast with it oh yeah for sure yeah. And this is the same with taking a walk, you know, the, you're going to, the light's going to come through the trees a certain way, you know, or if it's windy, you know, and you're actually in, in tune enough and you don't have your bloody headphones in like I do now, um, <laughs> listen to the wind rustling through, you might see a deer one day, you might see an elk one day, you might see a black bear, you know, if you come out and see me, I don't know, but it's, um, you never know what you might see, or you may even bump, bump into a friend who, if you, your head was down in your phone or in your fitness tracker, you may not, may not have noticed them or, may have physically bumped into that friend as a guy did uh trail running out recently where he um yeah he was real close he had his headphones in and uh was looking down at his his uh his fitbit or whatever for his heart rate monitoring and he was that close to bumping into me and so if the music motivated him you know great if um if the heart rate monitoring is giving him something good but it also diminished there was a cost and that cost was he was not aware of himself or how he was moving over and through terrain, almost to my detriment. Because I'm clumsy enough, as you know from the sprained ankle story. So that, that was a narrow trail. But you know there's a lovely little stream winding through there, trickling along. That's a nice kind of meditative. It's like being in a jet, one of those little Japanese gardens. Well, he sure wasn't here in that. You know, if there had been a bear on one side, he would not have noticed until if it was mama bear and cubs, and cubs have gone through and mama bear hasn't. That could have got real pretty quick. So... Be aware, be present. So, Phil, coming up on uh, a couple last questions that I like to ask everybody who comes on the show. One of them is, who would you want to hear on this podcast and what's something that you would either want to ask them or hear them talk about? Yeah, I mean, I think um, if you haven't had Stephen Kotler or Jamie Wheel on, for sure, because um, some of the things that they're doing now, not just with flow state, but in studying state change, and figuring out what kind of state you need to be in to achieve certain um, certain aims, certain outcomes, whether that's chilling out at the end of the day or that's getting up for whatever game day means to you. And um, and then Brian McKenzie, obviously, that's kind of a, a given. But um, in what Brian is able to do on that state change uh, angle with regard to the breath work now and the things that Brian is doing with breathing now, nobody is is coming at this like that. And like not just in the art of breath seminars that him and Rob Wilson are doing, but in what him and Kelly Starrett are doing from a breathing and mobility and movement quality standpoint, um, from a state change, just how you can change your cognitive, uh, physical and emotional state. So if you had Jamie and, uh, Stephen and Brian on all at once, I think you get, you go down some interesting rabbit holes really quick. Excellent. Excellent. I'm going to have to try and set something like that up because it just excites me even thinking about it right now. Mm -hmm. But Phil, in closing, where can everybody find out more about you? All the books that we've talked about, everything that has coming up for you, where, where can they check all this out? 
Yeah, it's interesting to give an online connected plug when you write a book called Unplugged. And we have uh, we have had some like kin <laughs> Kindle related irony, you know, or social media like you guys are on here every day pushing this thing. You're telling us to be unplugged. What are you doing? But uh, joking aside, um, just all the main social uh, sites backslash Phil White books and then the same my website, philwhitebooks.com, which right now uh, is well, it's live, but uh, yeah, we need to start adding some stuff to it. So yeah, Phil White, Phil White, and um, yeah, again, I just love having conversations. So it doesn't matter who you are, whether you like what we're doing, you hate what we're doing, um, comments, uh, conversation starters. I'd love to have a chat with you and just, um, yeah, whoever you are out there, welcome the chance to have a conversation anytime. Hit me up. There you go, guys. Check out all of that. Uh, start the conversation. Enjoy it. Uh, see see where it takes you. See what everybody can learn from it. Uh, but Phil, awesome. Uh, thank you so much for your time today. And thank you oh, well, also thank for you. all really the books you it. put out too. Uh, really, the books have been, I think, pretty profound. And uh, I'm excited to see what, what else is to come, uh, either this year or next year, all of the above. Yeah, well, thank you again. Really appreciate your time and um, the chance for our conversation today. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to head over to BarenakedHealthPodcast.com to check out the show notes for today's episode. While you're there, go to my calendar and schedule a 15-minute call so we can discuss what is your biggest struggle when it comes to maintaining your health. Remember that I'm a holistic lifestyle coach and the show is sponsored by you guys. Each of you that I work with helps me to be able to put out podcasts like this for free. So thanks again for your love and support. Finally, if the show has helped you out in any way, please head over to iTunes to give the Bare Naked Health Podcast a positive comment and five-star rating. This really goes a long way in getting the word out with how simple health can be and helping to share the podcast with others. So thank you. Mm -hmm.